Welcome to Nutting Memorial Library's presentation of Joseph Conrad's Lord Jim, a story of tragedy, adventure, and redemption that begins with a life-changing decision made by a young sailor in a moment of crisis. This podcast presents the text of Lord Jim as read from the original publication, available through Project Gutenberg. You can follow along in the text by clicking the link in our show notes. This is our 11th installment of Lord Jim, which includes chapters 28 through 30 for those following along in the text. Weekly episodes are released each Tuesday, so make sure you subscribe. With each episode, we recommend an article available via Nutting Library's electronic resources that provides insights on aspects of the novel, and we are also sharing details about the historical context at the time of its publication via our social media accounts. Thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoy this 11th installment of Lord Jim. Chapter 28 The defeated Sharif Ali fled the country without making another stand, and when the miserable hunted villagers began to crawl out of the jungle back to their rotting houses, it was Jim who, in consultation with Dane Waris, appointed the headman. Thus he became the virtual ruler of the land. As to old Tunku Alang, his fears at first had known no bounds. It is said that at the intelligence of the successful storming of the hill he flung himself, face down, on the bamboo floor of his audience hall, and lay motionless for a whole night and a whole day, uttering stifled sounds of such an appalling nature that no man dared approach his prostrate form nearer than a spear's length. Already he could see himself driven ignominiously out of Patusan, wandering abandoned, stripped, without opium, without his women, without followers, a fair game for the first comer to kill. After Sharif Ali, his turn would come and who could resist an attack led by such a devil? And indeed, he owed his life, and such authority as he still possessed at the time of my visit, to Jim's idea of what was fair alone. The Budges had been extremely anxious to pay off old scores, and the impassive old Doraman cherished the hope of yet seeing his son ruler of Patasan. During one of our interviews, he deliberately allowed me to get a glimpse of his secret ambition. Nothing could be finer in its way than the dignified wariness of his approaches. He himself, he began by declaring, had used his strength in his young days, but now he had grown old and tired. With his imposing bulk and haughty little eyes darting sagacious, inquisitive glances, he reminded one irresistibly of a cunning old elephant. The slow rise and fall of his vast breast went on, powerful and regular like the heave of a calm sea. He, too, as he protested, had an unbounded confidence in Tuan Jim's wisdom. If he could only obtain a promise, one word would be enough. His breathing silences, the low rumblings of his voice, recalled the last efforts of a spent thunderstorm. I tried to put the subject aside. It was difficult, for there could be no question that Jim had the power. In his new sphere there did not seem to be anything that was not his to hold or to give. But that, I repeat, was nothing in comparison with the notion, which occurred to me, while I listened with a show of attention, that he seemed to have come very near at last to mastering his fate. Doraman was anxious about the future of the country, and I was struck by the turn he gave to the argument. The land remains where God had put it, but white men, he said, they come to us and in a little while they go, they go away, those they leave behind do not know when to look for their return. They go to their own land, 
to their people, and so this white man too would. I don't know what induced me to commit myself at this point by a vigorous, no, no. The whole extent of this indiscretion became apparent when Doraman, turning full upon me his face, whose expression, fixed in rugged deep folds, remained unalterable, like a huge brown mask, said that this was good news indeed, reflectively, and then wanted to know why. His little motherly witch of a wife sat on my other hand, with her head covered and her feet tucked up, gazing through the great shutter-hole. I could only see a straying lock of grey hair, a high cheekbone, the slight masticating motion of the sharp chin. Without removing her eyes from the vast prospect of forests stretching as far as the hills, she asked me in a pitying voice why was it that he so young had wandered from his home, coming so far, through so many dangers. Had he no household there, no kinsman in his own country? Had he no mother who would always remember his face? I was completely unprepared for this. I could only mutter and shake my head vaguely. Afterwards, I am perfectly aware I cut a very poor figure trying to extricate myself out of this difficulty. From that moment, however, the old Nakoda became taciturn. He was not very pleased, I fear, and evidently I had given him food for thought. Strangely enough, on the evening of that very day, which was my last in Patisan, I was once more confronted with the same question, with the unanswerable why of Jim's fate. And this brings me to the story of his love. I suppose you think it is a story that you can imagine for yourselves. We have heard so many such stories, and the majority of us don't believe them to be stories of love at all. For the most part, we look upon them as stories of opportunities, episodes of passion at best, or perhaps only of youth and temptation, doomed to forgetfulness in the end, even if they pass through the reality of tenderness and regret. This view mostly is right, and perhaps in this case too, yet I don't know. To tell this story is by no means so easy as it should be, were the ordinary standpoint adequate. Apparently, it is a story very much like the others. For me, however, there is visible in its background the melancholy figure of a woman, the shadow of a cruel wisdom buried in a lonely grave, looking on wistfully, helplessly, with sealed lips. The grave itself, as I came upon it during an early morning stroll, was a rather shapeless brown mound, with an inlaid neat border of white lumps of coral at the base, and enclosed within a circular fence made of split saplings with the bark left on. A garland of leaves and flowers was woven about the heads of the slender posts, and the flowers were fresh. Thus, whether the shadow is of my imagination or not, I can at all events point out the significant fact of an unforgotten grave. When I tell you besides that Jim, with his own hands, had worked at the rustic fence, you will perceive directly the difference, the individual side of the story. There is in his espousal of memory and affection belonging to another human being something characteristic of his seriousness. He had a conscience, and it was a romantic conscience. Through her whole life the wife of the unspeakable Cornelius had no other companion, confidant, and friend but her daughter. How the poor woman had come to marry the awful little Malacca Portuguese after the separation from the father of her girl, and how that separation had been brought about, whether by death, which can be sometimes merciful, or by the merciless pressure of conventions, is a mystery to me. From the little which Stein, who knew so many stories, had let drop in my hearing, I am convinced that she was no ordinary woman. Her own father had been a white, a high official, 
one of the brilliantly endowed men who are not dull enough to nurse a success, and whose careers so often end under a cloud. I suppose she too must have lacked the saving dullness, and her career ended in Patisson. Our common fate, for where is the man, I mean a real sentient man, who does not remember vaguely having been deserted in the fullness of possession by someone or something more precious than life. Our common fate fastens upon the women with a peculiar cruelty. It does not punish like a master, but inflicts lingering torment, as if to gratify a secret, unappeasable spite. One would think that, appointed to rule on earth, it seeks to revenge itself upon the beings that come nearest to rising above the trammels of earthly caution. For it is only women who manage to put at times into their love an element just palpable enough to give one a fright, an extraterrestrial touch. I ask myself with wonder how the world can look to them, whether it has the shape and substance we know, the air we breathe. Sometimes I fancy it must be a region of unreasonable sublimities seething with the excitement of their adventurous souls, lighted by the glory of all possible risks and renunciations. However, I suspect there are a few women in the world, though of course I am aware of the multitudes of mankind and of the equality of sexes, in point of numbers, that is. But I am sure that the mother was as much of a woman as the daughter seemed to be. I cannot help picturing to myself these two, at first the young woman and the child, then the old woman and the young girl, the awful sameness and the swift passage of time, the barrier of forest, the solitude and the turmoil round these two lonely lives, and every word spoken between them penetrated with sad meaning. There must have been confidences, not so much of fact, I suppose, as of innermost feelings, regrets, fears, warnings, no doubt, warnings that the younger did not fully understand till the elder was dead, and Jim came along. Then I am sure she understood much, not everything, the fear mostly, it seems. Jim called her by a word that means precious, in the sense of a precious gem. Jewel. Pretty, isn't it? But he was capable of anything. He was equal to his fortune, and he, after all, must have been equal to his misfortune. Jewel, he called her, and he would say this as he might have said Jane, don't you know, with a marital, home-like, peaceful effect. I heard the name for the first time ten minutes after I had landed in his courtyard, when, after nearly shaking my arm off, he darted up the steps and began to make a joyous boyish disturbance at the door under the heavy eaves. Jewel, oh Jewel, quick, here's a friend come. And suddenly peering at me in the dim veranda, he mumbled earnestly, You know, this, no confounded nonsense about it, can't tell you how much I owe to her, and so, you understand, I, exactly as if. His hurried, anxious whispers were cut short by the flitting of a white form within the house, a faint exclamation and a childlike but energetic little face, with delicate features and a profound, attentive glance peeped out of the inner gloom, like a bird out of the recess of a nest. I was struck by the name, of course, but it was not till later on that I connected it with an astonishing rumor that had met me on my journey, at a little place on the coast about 230 miles south of Patteson River. Stein's schooner, in which I had my passage, put in there to collect some produce, and, going ashore, I found to my great surprise that the wretched locality could boast of a third-class deputy assistant resident, a big, fat, greasy, blinking fellow of mixed descent, with turned-out shiny lips. I found him lying extended on his back in a cane chair, odiously unbuttoned, 
with a large green leaf of some sort on the top of his steaming head, and another in his hand which he used lazily as a fan. Going to Patizan? Oh, yes, Stein's Trading Company. He knew. Had a permission? No business of his. It was not so bad there now, he remarked negligently. And he went on drawling, There's some sort of white vagabond has got in there, I hear. Eh? What you say? Friend of yours? So, then it was true there was one of these verdamta. What was he up to? Found his way in, the rascal. Eh? I had not been sure. Patison. They cut throats there. No business of ours. He interrupted himself to groan. Phew! Almighty! The heat! The heat! Well, then, there might be something in the story, too, after all, and... He shut one of his beastly glassy eyes. The eyelid went on quivering, while he leered at me atrociously with the other. Look here, says he mysteriously. If, do you understand, if he has really got hold of something fairly good, none of your bits of green glass, understand? I am a government official. You tell the rascal. Eh? What? Friend of yours? He continued wallowing calmly in the chair. You said so. That's just it. I am pleased to give you the hint. I suppose you, too, would like to get something out of it. Don't interrupt. You just tell him I've heard the tale. But to my government I have made no report. Not yet. See? Why make a report? Eh? Tell him to come to me, if they let him get alive out of the country. He had better look out for himself. Eh? I promise to ask no questions. On the quiet, you understand? You, too. You shall get something from me. Small commission for the trouble. Don't interrupt. I am a government official and make no report. That's business. Understand? I know some good people that will buy anything worth having, and can give him more money than the scoundrel ever saw in his life. I know his sort. He fixed me steadfastly with both his eyes open, while I stood over him utterly amazed, and asking myself whether he was mad or drunk. He perspired, puffed, moaning feebly, and scratching himself with such horrible composure that I could not bear the sight long enough to find out. Next day, talking casually with the people of the little native court of the place, I discovered that the story was traveling slowly down the coast about a mysterious white man in Patizan, who had got hold of an extraordinary gem, namely an emerald of an enormous size and altogether priceless. The emerald seems to appeal more to the eastern imagination than any other precious stone. The white man had obtained it, I was told, partly by the exercise of his wonderful strength and partly by cunning from the ruler of a distant country, whence he had fled instantly, arriving in Patizan in utmost distress, but frightening the people by his extreme ferocity, which nothing seemed able to subdue. Most of my informants were of the opinion that the stone was probably unlucky, like the famous stone of the Sultan of Sakadana, which in the old times had brought wars and untold calamities upon that country. Perhaps it was the same stone, one couldn't say. Indeed, the story of a fabulously large emerald is as old as the arrival of the first white men in the archipelago, and the belief in it is so persistent that less than forty years ago there had been an official Dutch inquiry into the truth of it. Such a jewel, it was explained to me by the old fellow from whom I heard most of this amazing Jim myth, a sort of scribe to the wretched little rajah of the place. Such a jewel, he said, cocking his poor, purblind eyes up at me. He was sitting on the cabin floor out of respect is best preserved by being concealed about the person of a woman. Yet it is not every woman that would do. She must be young, he sighed deeply, and insensible to the seductions of love. He shook his head skeptically, but such a woman seemed to be actually in existence. He had been told of a tall girl, whom the white man treated with great respect and care, 
and who never went forth from the house unattended. People said the white man could be seen with her almost any day. They walked side by side, openly, he holding her arm under his, pressed to his side, thus, in a most extraordinary way. This might be a lie, he conceded, for it was indeed a strange thing for anyone to do. On the other hand, there could be no doubt she wore the white man's jewel concealed upon her bosom. Chapter 29 This was the theory of Jim's marital evening walks. I made a third on more than one occasion, unpleasantly aware every time of Cornelius, who nursed the aggrieved sense of his legal paternity, slinking in the neighborhood with that peculiar twist of his mouth as if he were perpetually on the point of gnashing his teeth. But do you notice how, three hundred miles beyond the end of telegraph cables and mailboat lines, the haggard utilitarian lies of our civilization wither and die, to be replaced by pure exercises of imagination, that have the futility, often the charm, and sometimes the deep-hidden truthfulness of works of art? Romance had singled Jim for its own, and that was the true part of the story, which otherwise was all wrong. He did not hide his jewel. In fact, he was extremely proud of it. It comes to me now that I had, on the whole, seen very little of her. What I remember best is the even olive pallor of her complexion, with the intense blue-black gleams of her hair, flowing abundantly from under a small crimson cap she wore far back on her shapely head. Her movements were free, assured, and she blushed a dusky red. While Jim and I were talking, she would come and go with rapid glances at us, leaving on her passage an impression of grace and charm and a distinct suggestion of watchfulness. Her manner presented a curious combination of shyness and audacity. Every pretty smile was succeeded swiftly by a look of silent, repressed anxiety, as if put to flight by the recollection of some abiding danger. At times, she would sit down with us, and, with her soft cheek dimpled by the knuckles of her little hand, she would listen to our talk, her big, clear eyes would remain fastened on our lips, as though each pronounced word had a visible shape. Her mother had taught her to read and write, she had learned a good bit of English from Jim, and she spoke it most amusingly, with his own clipping, boyish intonation. Her tenderness hovered over him like a flutter of wings. She lived so completely in his contemplation that she had acquired something of his outward aspect, something that recalled him in her movements, in the way she stretched her arm, turned her head, directed her glances. Her vigilant affection had an intensity that made it almost perceptible to the senses. It seemed actually to exist in the ambient matter of space, to envelop him like a peculiar fragrance, to dwell in the sunshine like a tremulous, subdued, and impassioned note. I suppose you think that I too am romantic, but it is a mistake. I am relating to you the sober impressions of a bit of youth, of a strange, uneasy romance that had come in my way. I observed with interest the work of his, well, good fortune. He was jealously loved, but why should she be jealous, and of what, I could not tell. The land, the people, the forests were her accomplices, guarding him with vigilant accord, with an air of seclusion, of mystery, of invincible possession. There is no appeal, as it were. He was imprisoned within the very freedom of his power, and she, though ready to make a footstool of her head for his feet, guarded her conquest inflexibly, as though he were hard to keep. The very Tamitam, marching on the journeys upon the heels of his white lord, with his head thrown back, truculent and beweaponed like a janissary, with Chris, chopper, and lance, besides carrying Jim's gun, 
Even Tamatam allowed himself to put on airs of uncompromising guardianship, like a surly devoted jailer ready to lay down his life for his captive. On the evenings when we sat up late, his silent, indistinct form would pass and repass under the veranda, with noiseless footsteps, or lifting my head I would unexpectedly make him out standing rigidly erect in the shadow. As a general rule, he would vanish after a time, without a sound. But when we rose, he would spring up close to us as if from the ground, ready for any orders Jim might wish to give. The girl, too, I believe, never went to sleep till we had separated for the night. More than once I saw her and Jim through the window of my room come out together quietly and lean on the rough balustrade, two white forms very close, his arm about her waist, her head on his shoulder. Their soft murmurs reached me, penetrating, tender, with a calm, sad note in the stillness of the night, like a self-communion of one being carried on in two tones. Later on, tossing on my bed under the mosquito net, I was sure to hear slight creakings, faint breathing, a throat cleared cautiously, and I would know that Tam Tam was still on the prowl. Though he had, by the favor of the White Lord, a house in the compound, had taken wife and had lately been blessed with a child, I believe that during my stay, at all events, he slept on the veranda every night. It was very difficult to make his faithful and grim retainer talk. Even Jim himself was answered in jerky short sentences, under protest, as it were. Talking, he seemed to imply, was no business of his. The longest speech I heard him volunteer was one morning, when suddenly extending his hand toward the courtyard, he pointed at Cornelius and said, Here comes the Nazarene. I don't think he was addressing me, though I stood at his side. His object seemed rather to awaken the indignant attention of the universe. Some muttered allusions, which followed, to dogs and the smell of roast meat, struck me as singularly felicitous. The courtyard, a large square space, was one torrid blaze of sunshine, and bathed in intense light, Cornelius was creeping across in full view with an inexpressible effect of stealthiness, of dark and secret slinking. He reminded one of everything that is unsavory. His slow, laborious walk resembled the creeping of a repulsive beetle, the legs alone moving with horrid industry while the body glided evenly. I suppose he made straight enough for the place where he wanted to get to, but his progress with one shoulder carried forward seemed oblique. He was often seen circling slowly amongst the sheds, as if following a scent, passing before the veranda with upward stealthy glances, disappearing without haste round the corner of some hut. That he seemed free of the place demonstrated Jim's absurd carelessness, or else his infinite disdain, for Cornelius had played a very dubious part, to say the least of it, in a certain episode which might have ended fatally for Jim. As a matter of fact, it had redounded to his glory. But everything redounded to his glory. It was the irony of his good fortune that he, who had been too careful of it once, seemed to bear a charmed life. You must know he had left Dorman's place very soon after his arrival, much too soon, in fact, for his safety, and of course a long time before the war. In this he was actuated by a sense of duty. He had to look after Stein's business, he said, hadn't he? To that end, with an utter disregard of his personal safety, he crossed the river and took up his quarters with Cornelius. How the latter had managed to exist through the troubled times, I can't say. As Stein's agent, after all, he must have had Doraman's protection in a measure. 
and in one way or another he had managed to wriggle through all the deadly complications, while I have no doubt that his conduct, whatever line he was forced to take, was marked by that abjectness which was like the stamp of the man. That was his characteristic. He was fundamentally and outwardly abject, as other men are markedly of a generous, distinguished, or venerable appearance. It was the element of his nature which permeated all his acts and passions and emotions. He raged abjectly, smiled abjectly, was abjectly sad. His civilities and his indignations were alike abject. I am sure his love would have been the most abject of sentiments, but can one imagine a loathsome insect in love? And his loathsomeness, too, was abject, so that a simply disgusting person would have appeared noble by his side. He has his place neither in the background nor in the foreground of the story. He is simply seen skulking on the outskirts, enigmatical and unclean, tainting the fragrance of its youth and of its naiveness. His position, in any case, could not have been other than extremely miserable, yet it may very well be that he found some advantages in it. Jim told me he had been received at first with an abject display of the most amicable sentiments. The fellow apparently couldn't contain himself for joy, said Jim with disgust. He flew at me every morning to shake both my hands. Confound him! But I could never tell whether there would be any breakfast. If I got three meals in two days, I considered myself jolly lucky, and he made me a sign of chit for ten dollars every week. Said he was sure Mr. Stein did not mean him to keep me for nothing. Well, he kept me on nothing as near as possible, put it down to the unsettled state of the country, and made as if to tear his hair out, begging my pardon twenty times a day, so that I had to at least entreat him not to worry. It made me sick. Half the roof of his house had fallen in, and the whole place had a mangy look, with wisps of dry grass sticking out and the corners of broken mats flapping on every wall. He did his best to make out that Mr. Stein owed him money on the last three years' trading, but his books were all torn and some were missing. He tried to hint it was his late wife's fault. Disgusting scoundrel. At last I had to forbid him to mention his late wife at all. It made Jewel cry. I couldn't discover what became of all the trade goods. There is nothing in the store but rats, having a high old time amongst a litter of brown paper and old sacking. I was assured on every hand that he had a lot of money buried somewhere, but of course could get nothing out of him. It was the most miserable existence I led there in that wretched house. I tried to do my duty by Stein, but I had also other matters to think of. When I escaped to Doraman, old Tunku Alang got frightened and returned all my things. It was done in a roundabout way, and with no end of mystery, through a Chinaman who keeps a small shop here. But as soon as I left the Budges quarter and went to live with Cornelius, it began to be said openly that the Raja had made up his mind to have me killed before long. Pleasant, wasn't it? And I couldn't see what there was to prevent him if he really had made up his mind. The worst of it was, I couldn't help feeling I wasn't doing any good either for Stein or for myself. Ugh, oh, it was beastly, the whole six weeks of it. Joining us now to talk about this section of the text and provide an article recommendation is Lauren Gargani, Library Director at Maine Maritime Academy. Hi, Lauren. Welcome back. Hello, Anne. How are you today? Doing great. What fantastic article about Lord Jim or Joseph Conrad do you have for us today? I like your use of the word fantastic. Um, so this article is by Padmini Mongia, and it's called Ghosts of the Gothic, Spectral Women and Colonized Spaces in Lord Jim. 
Well, I certainly know that we have some women in this section, so I'd love to hear a little bit more about what she has to say. Yes, and so this is going back to, all the way back to 1993, and it is from the Conradian, from a, um, an issue on Conrad and gender. And so, yes, as we meet some female characters at this point in the novel, I thought, you know, this was, this was kind of chance, but I thought this would be a good time for us to look at this article. And um, again, you know, I, I love the title and I, I just wanted to know more about this take on the book. So Gothic is one of those words that even if you haven't studied a lot of literature recently, you know, it's a really, really evocative word. I think we all have some associations with that. And, you know, kind of a lot of us know what that means when we hear it. Yeah, I certainly always think of kind of a little dark and imposing, really atmospheric, like a Gothic cathedral is imposing and kind of made out of those um, intense stones and spires and all of that. Yeah, you know, dark and spooky and, you know, just just a, like really, you know, um, I also thought, you know, good week to go a little scary maybe. So um, what we have here is initially the author is talking a little bit about, you know, where Lord Jim is happening in terms of, you know, um, what she is citing as a description of Conrad falling into this uh, imperial gothic, which she is describing as, you know, a few other, um, like, also kind of H.G. Wells falling into this. Mm-hmm. Um and, you know, the idea of this style of Gothic-influenced writing as allowing for expression of anxiety about the waning of opportunities for heroic adventure. Okay, so this wouldn't necessarily be Gothic literature, but literature that's inspired by kind of the former Gothic literature a little bit later in time? Yeah, I think, you know, she's seeing elements here and she's saying that, you know, at the time of this article's publication, you know, this wasn't something that had been written about extensively. It had been mentioned. There was an unpublished dissertation she referenced called Joseph Conrad and the Tradition of the Gothic Romance. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, it, it is a different time that he's writing it. And I think that that's kind of, we talked, we talked a little bit about that a few weeks ago about, you know, modernity and the kind of accelerated industry and science um, and the developments that were happening around the time that Conrad was publishing Lord Jim being, you know, really just like the, the gateway to a very different kind of world. Yeah. Well, I think also about our conversation with maps and thinking about the empty spots on the map, which of course are not, empty in person um and it must have been a time where it seemed like there were many fewer of those there was so much sailing so much exploration had already happened and you know maybe feeling a little bit of a loss of that excitement which is certainly something that conrad seemed to like about sailing right um so in this article you know we're talking a lot about you know Conrad creating a world where where there are really a lot of Gothic elements and, you know, sort of some of that being represented and that mystery and, um, you know, the unknown, a lot, there's a lot of things happening here, but there is a lot in here about gender as well. 
And I just think it's a really interesting lens um, for us to be taking a look at the novel through. Um, and, you know, in terms of ghosts uh, referenced in the title, um, so we're meeting Jewel now, right? Yes, we have just met her, yeah. or at least come across her. Okay, um, so this article is going to talk a lot about her mother and the role that she plays, even though she is no longer with us, and, you know, kind of her lingering presence being a kind of ghost. Um, it's just... Well, it's this just... was certainly, it was written at a time when spiritualism was such a, a driving force and coming to terms with so many people having been lost in the wars of the 19th century and trying to get in touch with those spirits. So that makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, there's a lot of, um, you know, discussion of the, you know, Pachisan being a maternal space and a symbolic womb. Uh, it's somehow being like a Gothic castle in some senses uh, with some parallels there in a very different landscape. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, there's there's just, there's a lot going on here that I think is a really fascinating reading of some of the elements that we're encountering at this later stage in the novel. Well, and I'm thinking too, I hadn't really thought of it as a Gothic novel, but one of the things that comes to my mind when I think about some of the really big, important Gothic novels that we've probably all heard about, if not read, is the layering of narration and narrators and getting very curious about the reliability of those narrators and whether we're getting the full story. Um, you know, whether that's Frankenstein or Dracula, we get some of that. Um, the Private Memoirs and Confessions of a Justified Sinner, which is a really early example of a Gothic novel, um, also had an, a quote-unquote editor who is kind of... Um, moderating or experience of the novel and it certainly adds that uncertainty atmospheric quality kind of shadows you're not quite sure how to uh follow through um and now that i'm thinking about this as influenced by gothic literature i see that in lord jim and i i think that makes a lot of sense yeah yeah, there's a lot of discussion here about identity and, you know, how we understand these characters and some of the, you know, very conflicting aspects of their identities. Glad um, you see some parallels there. And I think that if that's the case, then you might enjoy this article. Great. Well, I assume that this one is also available through our resources. Yeah, I found this through JSTOR. And if you were interested in reading about Gothic literature, you know, we have the um, Gale Literature Resource Center through the Digital Main Library. There's also a good ebook on Gothic literature in our ebook collection. So if this, you know, sparked something and you were looking to go down that path to look for something new to read, uh, that's certainly an option. Great. And I will, of course, put in a plug for librarians around the world that, you know, if you're looking to read more Gothic literature, going to your local library and asking for some recommendations is probably a good way to go if you're not sure where to start. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate your bringing us yet another fun article, this one from a very different perspective. And I'm glad that you brought one um, about Jewel and about women um, at this point. So I really recommend that people dive into this a little more to get more of that perspective because women are something that's been a bit lacking in this book until now. Yes, and, and this this 
article really does talk about, you know, what are these women, what do they mean here? And I think it's, it's a lot of fun. Fantastic. Thank you. Thanks, Anne. And now we return to this installment of Lord Jim by Joseph Conrad. Chapter 30 He told me further that he didn't know what made him hang on, but of course we may guess. He sympathized deeply with the defenseless girl, at the mercy of that mean, cowardly scoundrel. It appears Cornelius led her an awful life, stopping only short of actual ill-usage, for which he had not the pluck, I suppose. He insisted upon her calling him father, and with respect, too, with respect, he would scream, shaking a little yellow fist in her face, I am a respectable man, and what are you? Tell me, what are you? You think I am going to bring up somebody else's child and not be treated with respect? You ought to be glad I let you. Come, say, yes, father. No, you wait a bit. Thereupon he would begin to abuse the dead woman till the girl would run off with her hands to her head. He pursued her, dashing in and out and round the house and amongst the sheds, would drive her into some corner where she would fall on her knees, stopping her ears, and then he would stand at a distance and declaim filthy denunciations at her back for half an hour at a stretch. "'Your mother was a devil, a deceitful devil, and you too are a devil,' he would shriek in a final outburst, pick up a bit of dry earth or a handful of mud, there's plenty of mud around the house, and fling it into her hair. Sometimes, though, she would hold out full of scorn, confronting him in silence, her face somber and contracted, and only now and then uttering a word or two that would make the other jump and writhe with the sting. Jim told me these scenes were terrible. It was indeed a strange thing to come upon in a wilderness. The endlessness of such a subtly cruel situation was appalling, if you think of it. The respectable Cornelius, Inchinellius, the Malays called him, with a grimace that meant many things, was a much disappointed man. I don't know what he had expected would be done for him in consideration of his marriage, but evidently the liberty to steal and embezzle and appropriate to himself for many years and in any way that suited him best, the goods of Stein's trading company, Stein kept the supply up unfalteringly as long as he could get his skippers to take it there, did not seem to him a fair equivalent for the sacrifice of his honorable name. Jim would have enjoyed exceedingly thrashing Cornelius within an inch of his life. On the other hand, the scenes were so painful a character, so abominable, that his impulse would be to get out of earshot in order to spare the girl's feelings. They left her agitated, speechless, clutching her bosom now and then with a stony, desperate face, and then Jim would lounge up and say unhappily, now, come, really, what's the use? You must try to eat a bit, or some such mark of sympathy. Cornelius would keep on slinking through the doorways, across the veranda and back again, as mute as a fish, and with malevolent, mistrustful, underhand glances. I can stop his game, Jim said to her once. Just say the word. And do you know what she answered? She said, Jim told me impressively, that if she had not been sure he was intensely wretched himself, she would have found the courage to kill him with her own hands. Just fancy that! The poor devil of a girl, almost a child, being driven to talk like that! He exclaimed in horror. It seemed impossible to save her not only from that mean rascal, but even from herself. It wasn't that he pitied her so much, he affirmed. It was more than pity. It was as if he had something on his conscience, while that life went on. 
To leave the house would have appeared a base desertion. He had understood at last that there was nothing to expect from a longer stay, neither accounts nor money nor truth of any sort, but he stayed on, exasperating Cornelius to the verge, I won't say of insanity, but almost of courage. Meantime, he felt all sorts of dangers gathering obscurely about him. Dorman had sent over twice a trusty servant to tell him seriously that he could do nothing for his safety unless he would recross the river again and live amongst the budges as at first. People of every condition used to call, often in the dead of night, in order to disclose to him plots for his assassination. He was to be poisoned. He was to be stabbed in the bathhouse. Arrangements were being made to have him shot from a boat on the river. Each of these informants professed himself to be his very good friend. It was enough, he told me, to spoil a fellow's rest forever. Something of the kind was extremely possible, nay, probable, but the lying warnings gave him only a sense of deadly scheming going on all around him, on all sides, in the dark. Nothing more calculated to shake the best of nerve. Finally, one night, Cornelius himself, with a great apparatus of alarm and secrecy, unfolded in solemn, wheedling tones a little plan wherein, for one hundred dollars, or even for eighty, let's say eighty, he, Cornelius, would procure a trustworthy man to smuggle Jim out of the river, all safe. There is nothing else for it now, if Jim cared a pin for his life. What's eighty dollars? A trifle, an insignificant sum. While he, Cornelius, who had to remain behind, was absolutely courting death by this proof of devotion to Mr. Stein's young friend. The sight of his abject grimacing was, Jim told me, very hard to bear. He clutched at his hair, beat his breast, rocked himself to and fro with his hands pressed to his stomach, and actually pretended to shed tears. "'Your blood be on your own head,' he squeaked at last and rushed out. It is a curious question how far Cornelius was sincere in that performance. Jim confessed to me that he did not sleep a wink after the fellow had gone. He lay on his back on a thin mat spread over the bamboo flooring, trying idly to make out the bare rafters and listening to the rustlings in the torn thatch. A star suddenly twinkled through a hole in the roof. His brain was in a whirl, but nevertheless it was on that very night that he matured his plan for overcoming Sharif Ali. It had been the thought of all the moments he could spare from the hopeless investigation into Stein's affairs, but the notion, he says, came to him then all at once. He could see, as it were, the guns mounted on the top of the hill. He got very hot and excited lying there. Sleep was out of the question more than ever. He jumped up and went out barefooted on the veranda. Walking silently, he came upon the girl, motionless against the wall, as if on the watch. In his then state of mind, it did not surprise him to see her up, nor yet to hear her ask in an anxious whisper where Cornelius could be. He simply said he did not know. She moaned a little and peered into the kampong. Everything was quiet. He was possessed by his new idea, and so full of it that he could not help telling the girl all about it at once. She listened, clapped her hands lightly, whispered softly her admiration, but was evidently on the alert all the time. It seems he had been used to make a confidant of her all along, and that she, on her part, could and did give him a lot of useful hints as to Patasan affairs, there is no doubt. He assured me more than once that he had never found himself the worse for her advice. At any rate, he was proceeding to explain his plan fully to her there and then, when she pressed his arm once and vanished from his side. Then Cornelius appeared from somewhere, and, perceiving Jim, ducked sideways as though he had been shot at, 
and afterwards stood very still in the dusk. At last he came forward prudently, like a suspicious cat. There were some fishermen there, with fish, he said in a shaky voice, to sell fish, you understand. It must have been then two o'clock in the morning, a likely time for anybody to hawk fish about. Jim, however, let the statement pass, and did not give it a single thought. Other matters occupied his mind, and besides, he had neither seen nor heard anything. He contented himself by saying, Oh, absently, got a drink of water out of a pitcher standing there, and leaving Cornelius a prey to some inexplicable emotion that made him embrace with both arms the worm-eaten rail of the veranda as if his legs had failed, went in again and lay down on his mat to think. By and by, he heard stealthy footsteps. They stopped. A voice whispered tremulously through the wall. Are you asleep? No, what is it? He answered briskly, and there was an abrupt movement outside, and then all was still, as if the whisperer had been startled. Extremely annoyed at this, Jim came out impetuously, and Cornelius, with a faint shriek, fled along the veranda as far as the steps, where he hung on the broken banister. Very puzzled, Jim called out to him from the distance to know what the devil he meant. "'Have you given your consideration to what I spoke to you about?' he asked Cornelius, pronouncing the words with difficulty, like a man in the cold fit of a fever. "'No!' shouted Jim in a passion. "'I have not, and I don't intend to. I am going to live here in Patteson.' "'You shall die here!' answered Cornelius, still shaking violently and in a sort of expiring voice. The whole performance was so absurd and provoking that Jim didn't know whether he ought to be amused or angry. "'Not till I have seen you tucked away, you bet,' he called out, exasperated yet ready to laugh. Half seriously, being excited with his own thoughts, you know, he went on shouting. "'Nothing can touch me. You can do your damnedest!' Somehow, the shadowy Cornelius far off there seemed to be the hateful embodiment of all the annoyances and difficulties he had found in his path. He let himself go. His nerves had been overwrought for days, and called him many pretty names. Swindler, liar, sorry rascal. In fact, carried on in an extraordinary way. He admits he passed all bounds, that he was quite beside himself, defied all Patteson to scare him away, declared he would make them all dance to his own tune yet, and so on, in a menacing, boasting strain. Perfectly bombastic and ridiculous, he said. His ears burned at the bare recollection. Must have been off his chump in some way. The girl, who was sitting with us, nodded her little head at me quickly, frowned faintly, and said, I heard him, with childlike solemnity. He laughed and blushed. What stopped him at last, he said, was the silence, the complete death-like silence of the indistinct figure far over there, that seemed to hang collapsed, doubled over the rail in a weird immobility. He came to his senses, and ceasing suddenly, wondered greatly at himself. He watched for a while, not a stir, not a sound, exactly as if the old chap had died while I had been making all that noise, he said. He was so ashamed of himself that he went indoors in a hurry without another word and flung himself down again. The row seemed to have done him good, though, because he went to sleep for the rest of the night like a baby, hadn't slept like that for weeks. But I didn't sleep, struck in the girl, one elbow on the table and nursing her cheek. I watched. Her big eyes flashed, rolling a little, and then she fixed them on my face intently. 
Thank you for joining us for this installment of Lord Jim. As a reminder, please check our show notes for the link to the text as well as information on related reading. This episode was read and produced by me, Anne Dyer. Article recommendations and graphics by Lauren Gargani. Special thanks to Emily Baer. Music by Chad Crouch.